0: in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary, void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: What I know to be true of a God of my understanding is learned through a practice of spirituality that connects me to the human and more-than-human world around me. I feel God most especially in poetry, in the warm embrace of someone I love, and in the resilience of the natural world. I know God intimately as the guiding energies of my ancestors and the mechanic wonder of my body. I don't need my relationship to God mediated, not by text nor by man. This doesn't mean that I'm not also unlearning the more harmful elements of my rearing in the church, that I'm not still hurt by the ways I internalized Leviticus, or by the shame and fear I felt attempting to pray the gay away. But my break away from the institution of the church has helped me tend those dogmatic wounds, as I understand, perhaps more than ever, that God is a companion to me as I am, not a patriarchal overseer demanding I adhere to rigid norms. You can imagine my delight reading Father Jerrell Robinson Brown's book, Black Gay British Christian Queer, The Church and the Famine of Grace. In it, Jarrell takes the church and its leadership to task for its exclusion of queer black bodies, citing the historical and ongoing ecclesial terrorism of the Christian community through its speech and its silence. Far from justifying queer black bodies of faith as worthy of communion, Jarrell argues that Christianity, as it's ministered and practiced now, evidences a famine of grace, a wayward deviation from the inclusive ministry of Jesus. In our conversation today, Jarrell gives an honest appraisal of the doctrine of forgiveness and shares how his theology has been transformed in relationship with those he ministers to. He also diagnoses the disembodiment of our faith as a symptom of the church's body phobia Jarrell says that the separation of faith and prayer from sex and pleasure prevents us from knowing and enjoying God as fully as God wants us to. And as the church continues to rattle through an identity crisis, Jarrell also shares with us his vision for what Christianity becomes at the end of the world as we know it. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Father Jarrell Robinson Brown. <laughs> Father Jarrell Robinson Brown, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be in conversation on Busy Being Black. I'm really glad to have you here.
1: Thank you. It's wonderful to join you. I really appreciate the invitation. It also feels weird calling you father. <laughs> I know. It's it's weird. Like when people are like in, in parish life, people who are not um, my age call me, it. I'm also like, what's going on? Yeah.
2: Like
1: when an eight-year-old calls you father, it's very strange. Yeah, and I just thought of a question that I'm definitely not going to ask. So
3: we... (laughs) What's it like being a zaddy? No, (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. I was like, well, what about when... Um, So to begin, I'd like to ask you a question. I ask all of my guests on Busy Being Black, how's your heart?
2: Mm. Gosh, um, I don't often quote St. Paul, but St. Paul says in Romans 5,
1: I think, um that suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope and hope doesn't let us down um I've had that piece of scripture in my mind recently because I think in terms of the heart question um I'm kind of heartbroken I think and that's that's a real thing in that um the man I loved and I'm still in love with and I went our separate ways only in October and that has been kind of quite I don't know. It's been. It's done to me, to me that I didn't think it would do, basically, and so my heart is kind of in a, yeah, it's
2: undone at the moment, and I'm trying to kind of work out what I do with that. So that's the yeah, I'm in that space. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Fine. The,
3: the man I was enjoying. Mm. is traveling around South Asia for six months. Wow. Yeah. And we always knew that he was leaving, right? That mm. he was going away. And we had this very mature approach that, you know, we'll just enjoy our time together while we have each other. Cool. And I was, you know, someone was asking about him and I said, oh, he's doing very well. And they said, you must be so heartbroken that he's, that he's gone. And I was like, I'm not actually, I'm really proud of him. I'm really proud that- he's taken off on this adventure and he's seeing new places and doing something that's invigorating for him. Um, but I do miss him. I miss him when I get into bed. Yeah. is yeah, that missing yes. that's
1: hard. It does this gap. I think that's kind of strange, you know, it's the good morning text It's the kind of knowing who you're going to spend, you know, your evenings with or whatever. It's that kind of, um, or well, not hearing a key in the door coming back to an empty flat. Like there's those, that kind of chasm that was left, mm. um, which takes a while to adjust to, you know.
3: Just this after I was making a cup of tea this afternoon and the word rhythm popped into my head. And uh, I think it has something to do with my in, renewed focus this year on creating around myself um, mm. the structure I need for rest, for play, yeah for joy and that one of the kind of daily joys that I'm experiencing at the moment is that in the morning I'm getting up and I know what I'm going to eat for breakfast. Like it's such a small thing, but I know that I'm going to have a banana sandwich. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I love that, that's bit kind of, when I have a banana there's some sense of, yeah. With you my know. red
3: bush tea. <laughs> um, And I'm on a new kind of like eating schedule. Um, I don't like calling it a diet because diet is such a loaded word, but I'm on a new eating schedule so that I can sleep better in the evening. And and yesterday I was down in London for the day. So I'm back home and I got home really late. I was very tired today. And I was like, what's wrong with you? Your rhythm is off. Mm. And so I think Mm. this applies to lovers and beloveds as well, right? That whether there's this chasm because of heartbreak and separation, or one of adventure, yeah. There's a disruption to the rhythm of our lives
1: together, mm. and that, that can hit such a deep level, which I, I think I was surprised by. But you're right; it can be sometimes you know, the smallest thing, um, like what you eat for breakfast, and the literal presence of someone in your life that mm. can completely, yeah, as you say, disrupt um, disrupt everything.
3: So, how are you getting back into Durrell's rhythm? Oh, no, I just mm. you noticed know, that that sounds like how Stella got her groove back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that.
1: How is Jarrell getting her groove back?
2: <laughs> oh,
1: man. I suppose in one way, I'm, I'm really lucky in that I, you know, as a priest, so much of my rhythm is fixed and just can't really be tampered with. You know, there's morning prayer at nine o'clock, evening prayer at five in church. Um, there's mass every Sunday. And that's just about enough, I think, to have helped me. Um I think there were moments when it wasn't, it wasn't quite enough, but it, it has been enough. And actually the, the moments of solace and peace are when I'm when I'm with the people. You know, like Sunday is the time I feel most at peace because I don't know, I just get something from being around the faithful, being around um other Christians. And and that love is so real, I think it's really it's something I think I forgot at one point. Um, when so much of the love I received was embodied in one one man, actually to to feel the love of uh, people that I don't share blood with and I'm not in any kind of formal relationship with is part of the rhythm that I think holds me. That like every Sunday we gather around one table, um, and we're all very different, but there's something at the centre of our lives that holds us all. Um, so that rhythm, yeah, that that has helped me. To get back to me, I think, in a way, Um, and I'm still trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: There's a lot I want to talk to you about today. As you know, I've, I have this enduring curiosity or interest in the faithful and the queer and the the queer engaging their faithfulness. I think particularly for those of us who grew up in the church Mm -hmm. and you know because we could say a lot about how Christianity and the language of theology which you talk about in your book has kind of infiltrated and shaped and animated our lives in the world no matter if we're religious or not but I think for those of us in particular who miss the church Mm -hmm. and Um, Who miss that communion and that community um, and who might be trying to navigate or mediate um, our spirituality and our relationship to this space and place. I think that your book and your ministry offer a really um, incisive and enlivening um, point of view and I'm really grateful for for the book and yeah, so just, that's the first thing to say thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you. It was definitely something that was written as a kind of pastoral response to a need that I saw, rather than a kind of desire to write a book on black gray theology. It was, yeah, I knew we needed it, I think.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because it's, I didn't get the sense reading the book that there's a justification, right? So much of the narrative about... <laughs> Um, LGBTQ people and faith, which we're separating here just to illustrate a point, mm-hmm. is a justification for L- is, you know, a, a book or a narrative directed at the church or at presumed heterosexuals justifying the lives of LGBTQ people in the church <laughs> even in the world. Yes. Um, and I think what is so exciting about your book is that it's definitely for us, you know, like there, are, I, I messaged you and I was like, damn,
2: <laughs>
3: there are just these moments when you're so clearly taking the church and its leadership
1: to task. And it, it's an invigorating read. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I definitely felt, you know, we, we don't need to justify ourselves. <laughs> and actually people have written so many books trying to do that. And we still get the same hate and exclusion and violence that we've always faced. One of the big criticisms of my book by other people is that I don't talk about sin in the book. Um, and you know, there's a portion where I, do, I say to people that you know I'm not gonna deal with any of the biblical texts. If you want that, here's a book you can read written by someone else. Um, because I just don't think that kind of work is helpful. We've done it once, <laughs> you know, so to do it in every text. And the reason I don't talk about sin is because we're so used to hearing about it. Actually, it's, it's old. <laughs> what we yeah. don't hear about is is other things um and i thought I'm, people can pick up any other book and find stuff about sin and um lgbt plus lives like, this book is not going to do that
3: no and i think yeah. a focus on sin um obscures what the real issue is which is the practice of spirituality it's the practice Absolutely. of christianity um and the teaching of it right mm-hmm. um so the the sin is effectively immaterial, if you're not gonna abide by them all equally in any way. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. We know, (laughs) completely. And so I love that. But before we jump into um, this conversation about the body and desire and Black queer people in our faiths, um, take me back to a young Jarell. What were
2: you like as a child? I think I was deeply inquisitive always. And weirdly, I would say that
1: God was never absent from my world, I think. I was very much a kind of... I mean, in one sense, I'm nothing like them. But I was very much a kind of Jeremiah, kind of Timothy, Samuel type. All these, um, these children, young people in the Bible, who just seem to kind of be in some kind of interaction with God. And it does seem normal, not seem strange. Um, like I just... I never... I can't remember a time when God was not kind of obviously part of my life or part of my experience. Um, And I think that had to do with the context I grew up in. So I wasn't raised by either of my parents. Um, By the time I was born, my father was not on the scene. Um, My mother suffers with schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder. Um, And literally just the other day, I found out from her, um, I'm smiling because I I don't know why she didn't tell me earlier, um, that... When she was pregnant with me, she was actually under a section in the mental health ward. And she kept telling the uh, nurses that she was pregnant and they wouldn't listen to her. Now, we know what black women go through in the healthcare system um, generally. But she said she had to literally escape from the ward once when like visitors had come in to like, run through the door, take herself to the maternity uh, ward and get a scan. And then she took it back to the mental health ward where she was sectioned and showed them. Because they they were giving her medication that she shouldn't have been taking as a pregnant woman, and so yeah, so so this was kind of something that I didn't know anything about, um, but that also was quite interesting to me that the context in which I kind of started out, if you like, was one where I was already quite vulnerable because my mom was vulnerable, um, so I was raised by both my my by my grandparents basically, my nana and my granddad who were from Jamaica, Windrush generation. Um, folk who came over to the UK and my nan worshipped in the Methodist church every Sunday and they were both Christian but they experienced so much racism in the Methodist church that my granddad uh, ironically worshipped in the same building but with the black Pentecostal church who worshipped in the evening um, or in the afternoon in the same building so they worshipped separately because of racism so nan was like able to stick it out basically and refused to not worship in the church that she felt was hers um granddad couldn't stick it out he worshiped with the church of god of prophecy um but it meant I grew up in a very christian environment and I was never forced to go to church but it was it was just what we did hmm. um and so my earliest memories are, are of being in church and and going to church with my nan and um, you know setting up the communion table and that really was a part of my formation I think as a person and my moral compass was shaped by her massively there's that rhythm again, yeah, exactly. Mm. And I and so my earliest, you know, he was Joel as a kid. I was someone who was completely entranced by faith, definitely.
3: And so, what drew you to ministry then? What was the moment where you, you were you thought to yourself,
1: "Yeah, I'm going to do this." Mm. Really early, I would say, from like the age of five. Really, I wanted, yeah, really, really early. Um, which to me seems crazy, but it's definitely, yeah, for me, it was really young. Um, And I kind of thought I would grow up and kind of come to my senses and then eventually do something else. Um, But I think what happened was, you know, life as a kid was quite traumatic and unstable. Um, And the one thing I do remember as a family, the one place support came from was from our clergy. You know, I remember Reverend Lucille Kaye, I remember Reverend Dorothy Lloyd-Williams, um, I remember Reverend Kit Bennett, all of whom they just seemed to constantly be around, um, and the one thing I knew as a kid was that they loved us, and these were all white folk, right? But I just I I never doubted for one moment that they were there for us and that their love was genuine, and I knew that they were people who were leading the church, and therefore I think there was something early on in me that thought. I want to be that kind of person (laughs) in other people's lives Um, because I saw the value of priesthood in them. I saw the value of ministry um, and people who were on one level, you know, complete strangers in one sense, but in other senses, part of the family and who saw us at our worst and at our best and shared in all the kind of ups and downs that we went through as a family. Um, But we're also deeply practical people <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. and I think they also shaped how I understood priesthood and how I still see it, which is that you are you are first and foremost a servant of God to God's people. Um, and if you can't do that stuff, you probably shouldn't be in it. <laughs> you know. I guess that's where power and domination come into the
3: conversation as well. I'm thinking now of, of Bell Hooks and her revelation if you will that the parent child relationship is one of domination and power right that kids Mm -hmm. are robbed of their agency and their autonomy and they're treated as if they're property um yeah i don't know why i thought of that but that like i I thought of it because it's a similar structure right that absolutely um yeah try to hold on to those who are quote unquote beneath us or under our care
1: um Mm -hmm. and kind of immobilize them Completely, yeah. And I think in terms of priesthood, you you either serve people in a way which enables them to become their true selves, or not. And I think that that power thing, power and influence, um, as opposed to vulnerability and humility, right, is is always something any leader needs to hold in a particular kind of tension.
3: When did you start realizing that you are queer?
1: Much later. March, okay. March, later, yeah. I, I didn't know until I was about 15.
3: And so did that experience, that kind of awakening within you, challenge your faith or challenge your experience of
2: your relationship with God? It did, I think, very briefly, but very intensely. I do remember,
1: I had a best friend in school um, who was, in many ways, kind of opposite to me, he was muslim um, from lebanon um, very you know if you want to talk about toxic masculinity kind of embodied it and i was not that kind of kid um, and we were just really close friends but i do remember the day when i felt very conscious that what i felt for him was not friendship and i was like oh shit what do i do like you're another guy like i'm meant to be a christian this is the okay, you're like very macho in all the worst ways, I'm not that, um, but I felt something that was genuine, and it wasn't just, it wasn't just in my heart, there was like, there was a desire and a lust for him, and I think that kind of came out of, I wasn't I, I wasn't ready for that, <laughs> uh, but it took me a long time to name it to myself, let alone name it to anyone else, um, and I think I had a lot of internalised homophobia, like I, there was a there was a older guy in our sixth form who I remember was the only gay person I knew. Um and I used to say the worst things about him to other people. And so for me, it was like to realize that we might have something in common was a real shock. And I was a preacher, I was I started preaching at 14, so I was a, I was a preacher before I'd even realized that I was not straight. Um, okay, James Baldwin. <laughs> right? This is <laughs> we walk like so so much in common. Um down that path it's so weird so I had I had congregations that I was preaching to at 14 that I knew couldn't handle this um and I think my biggest question for God was not like how do I make sense of this but why why have you done this to me knowing what I want to do like how unfair how cruel that this is actually the shape my life is taking and there was a real grief even at that age I think of knowing that I probably wasn't going to get married and have children, because that was what I thought was going to happen. Um, so there was a sadness, yeah, and a real a real wrestling with God, I think. Not so much over who I was, but the why, <laughs> you know. Mm. It just seemed, it seemed wicked that that should
2: be the way things were going to be for me. Yeah, I remember I... I don't want to say his name because I don't know
3: where he is or what he's doing. But mm-hmm. um, the the my first boyfriend, mm-hmm. and I rem- one one of the things that stands out about that is I remember it just feeling so utterly natural. That there wasn't there wasn't a question that we were necessarily wrong or doing. I mean, we knew that we were doing something we were not supposed to be doing because we snuck around, <laughs> but that when we were together, it just felt like totally natural Mm -hmm. but that that what that that natural feeling was challenged or i i myself challenged it because of what i was learning um in the church as part of a religious family even though i should say that none of my family expressed homophobic sentiments Mm -hmm. but you know you're kind of in an environment of of cultural Mm -hmm. and you know uh theological homophobia And so I really resonated with something that um, you wrote in Footch Press, which I'm gonna read at length because it makes sense altogether. I remember with a certain kind of spiritual volatility, questioning as I do what can only seem a divine act of cruelty, being born at a time and into a world where one's love is in one way or the other, menaced, despised, even worthy of death. To love and lose love in secret is a particularly unjust destiny. And this has so often been been the experience of many who love beyond heteronormativity, knowing a love that dare not in too many places speak its name. When one adds to this, the ways the Christian church, which I have loved too much, has tied all of us into this web of unreality where we feign the true shape of our existence The cruelty of truth's denial can seem like the greatest evil. The denial that love has been put on hold, the denial that loves have been lost, the denial that truth has been suppressed and falsehood exalted, and all in the name of a God who spoke of a truth which which sets us captives free. I think if I am honest, this is something I will never forgive the church for, the almost second nature way in which I deny my own gut, silencing the truths I know, but which my mind calls me to question. And it is strange that I should give this faith that I have so rarely seen lived out by those who persecute me such power because my body has never lied to me and so many Christians have. And so we're at this place where you're questioning this cruelty, right? Why me mm. knowing what you know that I want to do? And then you enter, you proceed anyway. Right? You're yeah. like, I'm going (laughs) I'm going in guns blazing as it were Yep. um and I think what impresses me about this passage in particular is your honest
2: self-appraisal of your inability to forgive I think forgiveness is is
1: so hard (laughs) and that was something I think I was wrestling with right this this sense that there is there is something deeply cruel about being born into a time when you can't be you mm. and I think as as black folk like because we know what we've been through to be black and queer it's like yeah on one level you look back and something feels like the past and on another level we're still not free
2: <laughs>
1: mm. you know on so many
2: different levels and it just seems to me that There is something there is something evil, there is something wicked about love being despised or being hated and having
1: to be secret. I can't I can't really think of anything cooler, actually, than having to lie about love.
3: (laughs) I think there's a perception that our pastors, our priests, those to whom we look for counsel have somehow triumphed over all adversity, are never questioning, are kind of looking to the word and speaking with God as if they know all the answers and then imparting that wisdom to us. And I think this passage resonates also because it reminds me that you are human, you are fallible, you are thinking, you are questioning. Um, and I'm I'm curious about where you learned that practice of priestliness, right? This mm-hmm. kind of ongoing Um, questioning and holding on to of this kind of fleshy, earthy human experience?
2: Mm. It might sound like a really pious response, but I think it's it's honest. I think it's true.
1: Um, I think I I learned it from Jesus. (laughs) Honestly, I think, uh, you know, when I look at him in the Gospels, yeah, yeah, what challenges me most about him? You know, rising from the dead is incredible by itself, right? But what's, what's <laughs> more remarkable... Like, exactly, like, <laughs> who can't, like, be shocked and amazed by that?
2: But I've always said to people, I'm, I find Christmas more important than Easter.
1: And one of the reasons is because at Christmas what we're faced with is a God who decides to become a vulnerable, tiny, homeless refugee child born into a dysfunctional family <laughs> that's <laughs> you know, one way of saying it yeah <laughs> yeah he, he's got he's got parents whose story doesn't add up they have to flee for safety you know as Cornel west would put it you know jesus is born between urine and feces like the rest of us right mm. and what i see as that child grows up is someone who, who embraces all of that who doesn't who doesn't run away from what it means to be human. And I think I find that deeply inspiring. And I think I've seen it in Jesus, but then the, the other person I've seen it in is my grandmother. You know, she she modeled in her life um, an honesty that made other people uncomfortable, not in, not in a sense of like truth telling, but honesty about her own wounds, her own flaws, her own struggles with God, her own trauma, um, and yet she was also the strongest person I know and knew. I think that, that for me is, that's where it comes from, I think. Like my nan pushed me to be real and to be honest, I think. And if anyone has formed me for priesthood most, more than all the years I spent in seminary, it was her. Um, because honesty to self for her was, was the most important thing.
0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
3: Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with queer black theologian and Anglican priest Father Jarell Robinson Brown. We're discussing grace, forgiveness, how he's learned to deliver pastoral care, and recovering an erotic intimacy to God. You write a lot about
2: grace. Can you define grace for us? I think grace is God's love for us
1: in the shape of the cross. It's the it's the love that we seek in other human beings but never find. I think it's the love that makes us feel safe. (laughs) It's the love that makes us truly believe that we're loved for who and what we are, despite who and what we
2: are. Mm. Um, And I think that's, that's the thing that makes it seem
1: so untrue and unbelievable, because we don't think that kind of love is possible. Hearing you
3: say what grace is makes me think of Reverend Angel Kyoto saying that love is spaciousness.
2: Mm.
3: It is creating enough space within ourselves to allow others to show up as they are. And that doesn't mean that we don't have hopes that things are changed or shifted, but that to come from a place of love is to be an acceptance of what is, even in the face of moving it towards something that is more whole, more just, and more spacious
1: for all of us. That's beautiful. And I think that is, you know, that's, that's the link between, I think, grace and forgiveness, right? Mm. Is, that, is that grace, grace is what makes forgiveness possible. Because if I know that I am loved completely, then my love for other people kind of automatically becomes more capacious, right? If I know that I am loved without any terms and conditions, without any small print, by the one that created me, then I, I can love other people with a depth
2: and and radical edge that seems almost uh, almost
1: crazy to some people. <laughs> you know, it seems too. It seems too inclusive. Um, and that's the love that we see in Jesus as well. It was a love that people questioned all the time because they were like, "How how can you love these people? How can you be friends with sex workers and tax collectors and?" Outcasts, and how can you do things like heal on the Sabbath and do all this kind of stuff? How can you touch the dead? But because he knew who he was and whose he was, which is what love gives you, then there's nothing to fear. I love that he knew who he was and whose
3: he was. Hello. I don't like to call it an inability to forgive. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem like a fair appraisal of what's happening. So I'm going to say a withholding of forgiveness. Mm. do you think that the withholding of forgiveness in the context of grace and love can point to some sort of elemental wrong
2: Mm. like
3: is it an act of defiance is it an act
2: after your grandmother of Mm. being honest I would say so I think I think forgiveness
1: you know I think people have to be honest that in some circumstances forgiveness is not always possible and people love to say, you know, the things that Jesus said. This is this is where me and me and Jesus would have to sit down and have a long conversation because I don't think forgiveness is <laughs> is that easy. I think it's really tough. And I and I wonder. I remember preaching on this once and saying maybe forgiveness is like a gift of the spirit or a fruit of the spirit that some people have and some just don't because there are contexts in which people talk about having forgiven and I don't believe them because it. You know, I can think of big cases in our in our world where people have experienced tragedy. Someone has done something very violent to a son or to to someone. And, you know, at the press conference the next day, the bereaved person is saying, you know, I forgive. And I hear it. And I'm like, yeah, maybe that's easy to say yeah. now. But let's wait, because I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's that simple. No. There's something human about us that... that you know, again, to go back to the honesty thing, you know, there are times when I, I genuinely want people who have made me to suffer to experience some of the pain that I felt. That's, what, that's, that's real. That's true. <laughs> really?
2: Yeah. Okay.
3: Well, this is a challenge to kind of like the linear progression, right? Because forgiveness, I think, is taught to us as the final stage, mm-hmm. the final necessary stage you are going to forgive. I I was talking about this with Nakane. Nakane said that um, in South Africa, black people were told you have forgiven. And there was no conversation about what forgiveness might look like, what they would need for that. Um, And so I love that there's, that we can, that we have a priest in front of us telling us that forgiveness might not always be possible.
1: And it can be used as a weapon, right? I, I, as a priest, I, as a religious leader,
2: have to be really careful, I think, preaching about forgiveness, because what, is it always, what does it look like? <laughs> you know, I
1: have, I have a congregation on Sundays of all kinds of people whose lives I know in part, but not in whole. And I, I would be very scared to think that, you know, maybe I would preach on forgiveness as, it, as a kind of mandate And some people could be beaten by their spouses or have genuine abuses that that they're experiencing, or even something less than that, something at work, perhaps, where there does need to be a whistleblower, right? And I'm speaking about forgiveness as though it means just turning the other way and turning an eye, a a shut eye to everything else that's wrong. So we we need to be careful about it because it it can be spiritually abusive. It's quite dangerous forgiveness. Mm. Yes, I feel
3: so affirmed. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well, maybe that is then the function of grace, right? Yeah. Because perhaps in those instances where forgiveness just is not possible right now, I don't have to forgive, but I can extend grace. I'm not going to wish you harm. I, I don't want your family to suffer. I don't want All of that, but I just don't want you. What did Tupac say? I want everybody to eat, just not at my table. (laughs) Right? So maybe that's grace.
2: (laughs) Maybe that's grace
3: too. So we've been speaking about forgiveness, grace, your lifelong relationship and conversation with God. I think one of the things that stands out to me is your really unapologetic approach to the connection between the divine. And your human erotic experience or your desire. Mm -hmm. And at the top of the show, you know, you're talking about heartbreak. And I thought there will be many people who haven't heard um, their pastor talk about heartbreak, nevertheless, desire. Um, Rumi scholar Fatima Keshavar's argues that the Sufi poet Rumi didn't see any division or conflict between the erotic and the divine, and that across his work, one is not entirely sure if his poetry is about love or God or both simultaneously. And I've learned through Rumi's poetry, but also through your explication of uh, Rotimi Thani Coyote, that our connection to each other and to the divine is a profoundly erotic experience. Um, One of of my favorite Rumi poems is Like This, which is kind of, I think, exemplary of this erotic divine connection. Um, He writes, when someone asks you, how did Jesus raise the dead? Kiss me on the lips, say like this. And so I wanna talk to you about desire and I wanna start by asking about the kind of disembodiment of our connection to God And so what have you learned about how we recover an erotic and embodied intimacy with God?
1: I think I've learned that it's hard. (laughs) It's really hard because we're we're undoing, well, at least in the Christian context, 2000 years of body phobia in the church. Um, You know, the the body has been seen as something to be dominated and controlled and um, uh, kind of, it's been demonized, right? Flesh has been demonized in Christianity for such a long time. And that's hard because it shaped so much of our theology and it's kind of no wonder we've ended up where we have in relation to race and gender and sexuality and disability. <laughs> like it's, it was the obvious outcome really of a, of a faith that hasn't done well, seeing the body as a site of holiness, um, as, as a site of the divine. I think it, it's hard is the first thing I would say. Um, But it's also really weird in christianity that we've got this problem because you know we we use body language all the time in the church you know the church is the body of christ every sunday we break bread and drink wine which you know in our catholic context we believe to be the body and the blood of jesus you know actually change um you know we we have at the center of our faith you know a half naked man on the cross right so so this, this, the sense in which Christianity tries to evade the body and its desire, to me, is is really bizarre. And I think, I often think of what Penny Morrison said in one of her essays where she said, my single gravest responsibility is not to lie. And one of the things I found is that often the church is the place in which we lie about what it means to be in our bodies. And that, for me, is a massive problem for a faith which has a body at its center um you know the body of god in jesus is at the center of christianity um and yet we know that we have people in churches who surely must wonder you know if sex is so bad why does it feel so good and the church has been trying to convince people of its of its wrongness <laughs> and it's it's sinfulness for centuries but bodies don't or like its it. singular utility exactly yeah Absolutely. Um, And and we know that that's counter to what our bodies feel. Um, So I think there's something there about, you know, trying to undo such a long history, but also having the courage to name what all of us in our bodies know about the divine and our own experience of flesh with flesh and having the courage to name that. Um, I think often that comes at great cost. And for some people it's impossible. Hmm. You know, for priests, for example, um, naming that reality comes at great cost because there's so much falsehood um, at work in the structures of the church to kind of, to keep the flesh in its place, particularly in the flesh of those who are meant to be, you know, as you said earlier, the kind of experts, if you like, in this, hmm. <laughs> you know, to have all the answers, to have, you know, victory, over the body I don't know what that looks like
3: the biophilosopher Andreas Weber d- defines erotic as a hunger for more life mm. and is that not a Christian thrust in, in
1: at at the core yes I mean I, so yeah I, I think it is I think you know for me desire is at the heart of my faith because I see desire in everything that Christianity says about God um, in the sense that the only reason the world was created was because God desired to create the world. You know, the only reason that Jesus is born is because if you like God falls so in love with what God has created, that God is like, I need, I need to be close to this. (laughs) And the the one way in which I can be close to this is to take on flesh as well. Mm. Um, And interestingly, the, the, the words of the last supper, um, in Greek, what the words that Jesus uses are with, with longing desire, I desire to share this meal with you. And, and the word that the, the word for desire that he uses the first time is, is an erotic desire.
2: Mm.
1: And there's something there about, you know, this meal that he shares with his friends the night before he dies is him sharing his body with these disciples. Um, and literally physically putting that that bread in their hands and like sharing wine with them, knowing the whole passion, that that drama of love and betrayal, right? That's gonna happen the next day. So there's desire is at the heart of what we believe, but we still don't know what to do with it.
3: Right. Well, to go back to our conversation about feeling good with Mm. other people, with same gender people, with people of different and varying genders, those intimate moments when we're alone with someone that we desire can feel like a spiritual experience, right? It often is. If Mm -hmm. we're present, if we're in the moment and that desire to pleasure someone or to make someone feel good or to accept someone else in as as who they are as who they show up naked to you yeah. um with also a, a a responding or reciprocal desire to please you that's such a beautiful thing that must be divine i mean right? like it,
1: it must be of course and the, and this is the this is the issue i think is that it's so obvious right that that this sense yeah. of no no yeah. one can deny what is happening for people in a moment of climax right like mm. like there is a line and a wall literally being transcended and broken, like people are entering a different space. And that, to me, seems so weird to deny when people know it to be true, factually. Yeah, You know, like the the body doesn't lie, love works. (laughs) Um, It's that straightforward. Um, And there's so much, I think, that would deepen our spirituality and our theology if we didn't create this wall between sex and prayer Mm. you know and i think i think you can see it in people the 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 ecstasy i see in people's faces when they're praying the ecstasy i see in some people when they're at mass like i know what that looks like (laughs) you know it's not it's not um, not rocket science it's not but we we all i think well many of us continue to be complicit in this kind of silly game of pretending like god and our bodies are not intricately connected and it's tiresome because it's not true and it's it's tedious because it stops us all i think from if you forgive the phrase going deeper in god right (laughs) like it stops that (laughs) (laughs) which is a real like that God wants us to experience
2: um, the fullness of God and we stop that we stop that Um, yeah how might you begin to talk about what it means to deliver pastoral care Hmm. I think there's something about having experienced it for oneself um, and the
1: vulnerability that is is necessary in any pastoral relationship. Um, that one can't give care unless one is willing to be vulnerable. Um I think that's really important to 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 be as human as you can, I think, in the offering of of pastoral care. Um and to realize that actually you as a priest, and that's the only context I can speak from, is you as a priest are not are not the caregiver, actually. <laughs> um, you're an intermediary for God to give the care God God longs for that person to receive.
3: Oh, okay. And the job is it's for so us so to glad get to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean,
1: I mean, other people will see it differently.
2: Hmm. This is
1: me, this is me saying how I see it. Um I think our job as people who provide pastoral care is, is to get out of the way as much as possible. Um, hmm. you know, what I what I think I do or what I hope to do with people is to is to help them see themselves as God sees them. Um, And, you know, part of pastoral care is a very practical thing. It might be, you know, when it was the pandemic, pastoral care looked like doing people shopping for them. It looked like, you know, um, lots of very practical things. But you're still trying to help that person see that everything they're receiving, they're receiving because they're of value to God. And everything the church does for people, that has to be the motive. I think. Um, so I see my role very much in that sense that if I begin to talk about it, I want to talk about it as pastoral care is basically God's love at work in the world
2: through the mechanisms of the church. But we, we have no care to give of our own. Wow. Yeah. And how is your role as confidant,
3: as caregiver, as get out of the way <laughs> altered or affirmed how you understand the teachings or
2: how you understand christianity yeah I, I said it to someone today actually um
1: my best theology is done in my role as a priest and i, and I think i would be i'd be a very different theologian if I wasn't constantly faced with people whose lives, you know, take all kinds of shape and are sometimes messy and contradictory and paradoxical, like it's all very well to have deep theological convictions. And I have some, and some of those, some people might find quite problematic, I think sometimes they assume all kinds of things about about people. Um, But all of those convictions are shifted and critiqued in the, kind of the crucible of pastoral relationship because I can believe what I want. If the person in front of me, whose reality is very different to mine, um, you know, is truly made in the image and likeness of God, my theology has to catch up. I can't be like, this is where I stand and I have to just leave you where you are. Like I have to do some really deep thinking because theological conviction is fine, but real life is real life. And, and theology has to make sense of that. So it's all very well, people being like, you know, we're against same-sex relationships, but people are in them and falling in love with people of the same sex. So you, <laughs> your theology has to change, surely. Um, but often it doesn't, I think. But mine, mine definitely has. And I would say that um, priesthood is exchange. It's an exchange of, of experience and wisdom. Um And my greatest teachers have been the people I serve. I just don't... I don't think that people would expect that.
3: (laughs) I
2: certainly didn't.
3: (laughs) You know? And the books are great. Yeah. (laughs) But, But yeah, it's relational. If I think about my grandfather, I never once considered that... And I'll have to ask him about it. But I never once considered that his... And maybe I should have, because he actually told me when I came out that um, he knew since I was four, and that's how he knew that our sexuality wasn't a choice. And this is a black Southern Baptist, had his own church, everything. And yeah. that really surprised me. But I didn't see that as, mm-hmm. as, as you've explained it, right? As his theology um, being relational, adaptable,
1: Basically, his, his relationship to you taught him something that a seminary wouldn't have. Yeah, he updated his theological software. Basically, yeah.
3: <laughs> um, I watched a really interesting conversation with Sophie Strand and Bio akamalafe both of whom were working in this kind of poetic, ecological, mythological um, space. And I recommend listeners and you to dive into their work fully. Mm-hmm. Um, this conversation was about you know, uh, reclaiming or re-earthing Jesus um, via Sophie's work and the various ways Christianity has shape-shifted and morphed um, since its inception. And one of the things that stood out to me in that conversation was Sophie Strand saying that um, in the beginning, the practice of Judaism, um, the practices were actually mostly not written. And she Mm -hmm. says, quote, the written text was seen as being a sacred object, but it was untrustworthy. If you couldn't extrapolate on it and change it in conversation with other people she goes on to assess that quote we've lost that collaborative adaptability of scripture end quote and so it feels to me that pastoral care as you describe it has that potential right to be collaborative and adaptable and more responsive to or pastoral care might then allow the church if it's done properly, to be more responsive to the time, to be more problem solvers than problem creators. Absolutely.
1: And, I, and I, yeah, completely. And one of the biggest losses that I think we have in Christianity is not valuing our Jewish tradition enough. Because, because what that means, you know, the Jewish tradition have always had um, you know, rabbis who have debated scripture together and often the biblical text would have different rabbis' um, thoughts on the passage all around it and Christianity essentially lost that and now we come to a place where, you know, we think there's only one understanding of scripture and, and what that rabbinical material kind of showed was that the interpretation of scripture was something you did together, it was a collegial thing, it was a corporate thing, it wasn't something that you do alone in your study. Um, and Christianity, we, we held on to it for about the first 200 years, and then it just went completely. And I think that is something that is a huge loss to us. We, we've lost many things by not valuing our Jewish heritage, but that, that for me is I think the biggest because of the damage it's doing to us now, where we think that we all on our own are the sole interpreters of scripture. And that I don't need to be in dialogue with anyone to get the truth. <laughs> I don't need to be in dialogue with God to get the truth. Mm. I can just pick up this book and use it as a weapon because, you know, I know what it means. (laughs) Yeah. And even then you might not. Absolutely. (laughs) You almost certainly won't. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Completely. Completely.
2: Um
3: we're almost out of time. towards the end of my conversations on the show as you know i and i think i'm moving away from this question what do you hope for i don't know why but no question can last forever except for maybe how's your heart but because it's such a great question but um i'm looking at new ways of reframing that question and so let's use our imaginations i know that you are a reader of liberation and a practitioner of liberation theology and that it informs Um, your work and your practice, that you're also a reader and engager of um, queer theory and queer theology. And so with that in mind, let's imagine that liberation theology gets us where we need to go. And that Christianity is utilized to awaken its followers to what Juno Diaz calls, quote, the cannibal horrors of our time. Let's imagine That instead of Christianity as a weapon against the vulnerable, it becomes the empowering and actionable faith of the oppressed. Let's imagine Christianity plays its part in dismantling oppressive and violent structures, including the churches we know it, and helps fashion a world worthy of us all. Let's imagine we live in the futures many of us are working towards, futures where we are living in divine relationship to each other and the more than human world around us father what becomes the function of christianity
2: at the end of the world as we know it Hmm. that's a biggie i suppose what you describe is the kingdom of god (laughs) it's it's god's
1: dream for creation and so the the role of christianity i think some people won't like me saying this but i think The role of Christianity is to die. (laughs) The role of Christianity is to lay down its life. Um, Because if that kind of world was to really exist, then Christianity at its best has fulfilled its purpose. So at that point, there's no need for a church. There's no need for Christianity because what God longs for and the whole reason Christ came has finally come to pass. Um, and so Christianity is to kind of model a particular kind of death at that point.
3: I think this offering of
1: Christianity working
3: towards its own death knowing that it, it's done what it needs to do says a lot about how we practice our faith, no? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think so. I think so and I think, I think the role of spiritual practice is to teach us to surrender. It's to teach us to embrace death, to lay down our weapons, to lay down our power, to lay down our desire to be in control. Um, that, that's the whole point, at least from, from a Christian perspective,
2: of what we're about. <laughs> and that's the point at which we find life. To close, will you lead us in a prayer for a queer Black kin? That will be joy. Definitely. God of our ancestors, you know each of us by name. You hold us. You love us. You value us as your beloved children. Into your presence we can bring all that we are, all that we know, all that we have seen and heard, Lord God, we pray that you would
1: enable us to hear your love for us over and above all the things that the world might say about and to us. Help us to see ourselves as made in your image and likeness of inherent value and worth.
2: Guide us each day until we see you face to face. And may the peace of God, which passes
1: all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of us this day and every day. Amen.
3: Father Jarell Robinson-Brown is the assistant curate at St. Boltoff Without Aldgate and Holy Trinity Minories in the Diocese of London. He is also a visiting scholar at Sarum College Salisbury and co-chair of the LGBTQ Christian charity One Body, One Faith, which works for the full inclusion of LGBTQ people in the church. His books and publications are available at JarellRobinsonBrown.com. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music.
2: I'm so